Calling all Swifties and champions of change, Like a Girl Media is rolling out the red carpet for you with our Thrive Like a Girl contest. We're all about celebrating powerful women leaders who inspire us to dream big and push boundaries. And who embodies that spirit more than Taylor Swift herself? Here's your chance to see her live in concert. We're giving away two tickets to Taylor Swift's show in London on Saturday, June 22nd. Imagine being part of the magic, all thanks to Like a Girl Media. Entering is easy. Subscribe, share, and show us which episodes inspired you the most. Visit our website or check our social media for all the details. Don't just dream it, be it. Thrive like a girl and make this summer unforgettable. Contest opens globally, voidware prohibited, must be 18 or older to enter, no purchase necessary. Subscribe and share with hashtag thrive like a girl and tag us at like a girl underscore media for entry. Unlimited entries means unlimited chances. Winner chosen at random after contest closes May 20th, 2024. We'll be notified via DM. Make sure your profiles are not private. Check full rules on our site. This is your shot to see Taylor Swift live. Don't miss it. Hey there, welcome to the Hit Like a Girl podcast. I'm your host, Dana Trampas. On this show, we are all about amplifying the voices of women and storytellers who are making waves. From innovation, advocacy, and more, we're here to showcase the incredible work being done by extraordinary individuals. And speaking of incredible work, I'd love to give today's guest an opportunity to introduce herself and tell us about her work in health equity. Over to you, Dr. Chang. Thank you, Dana, for having me and inviting me. I am a family doctor at a community health center called Asian Health Services in Oakland, California. You and I met because we were both at the National Association of Community Health Centers Community Health Institute, and you came to one of the sessions that I was on a panel for talking about health IT and how do we use health IT to address intimate partner violence and human trafficking and exploitation in our patients at community health centers. So thank you for attending. And I'm, I'm so uh, grateful to be a part of your podcast. Thank you. Uh, that session was exceptionally enlightening to me of learning about how these different worlds come together, right? We had healthcare, we had public health, and then we had like social justice and law. And one of those pieces of that talk that was very interesting to me was the way that we describe that and the words that we use, right? Like we may refer to it as human trafficking in one arena. And then the other arena, we may refer to it as exploitation. So can you talk a little bit about that? Because I know you have background, in, you have an MPH, which I'm working on right now, you're an MD. So how do we navigate these different arenas to make sure that we're all kind of talking the same language around human trafficking. That's a great point. When I first started doing this work and I was seeing patients who were being commercially sexually exploited in Oakland, they were young girls under the age of 18. I didn't actually realize that they were under federal law considered to be victims of human trafficking, victims of severe forms of sex trafficking. So the human trafficking definition is actually a criminal justice definition. It's a crime in federal legislation and in some states, right? But for us in healthcare, as I moved forward in taking care of these patients and really understanding their patients' experiences, I realized that we in healthcare, in public health as clinicians, are not criminal justice investigators. And so when we look at the issue, I am not trying to determine whether someone is a victim of a crime. I'm trying to take care of the experiences that they've had and the harms 
that that may have resulted or the health impacts that may have come out of those experiences. So we look at it more broadly in terms of exploitation, labor exploitation or sexual exploitation, or even broader than sexual exploitation is sexual violence. And so this is the different kinds of terminologies and the outlooks that we bring when we we take care of these patients. And we really have to be advocates for the patient's experiences and what their needs are versus the criminal justice perspective. Because I'm not a criminal justice investigator. I'm not a law enforcement entity. And in that navigation, how does that collaboration happen? Like, how do you make sure that those are effective collaborations between healthcare and law enforcement and social services to ensure that you're, ha- you're, you're providing comprehensive support to survivors and whatnot? Yeah, this is a very important and critical question. And, and you understand that every sector looks at things in a certain way. Healthcare looks at it in a certain way. Criminal justice looks at it a certain way. Social services look at it in a certain way. And so the really important thing that we must do, our job as professionals, is to make those partnerships on the back end so that when someone comes in to see us as a patient or somebody is interfacing with law enforcement, that law enforcement knows that there's health impacts from this issue they're experiencing, that I know that there could be criminal justice remedies or protections that they, that patients can access if they're a victim of a crime. That social services knows that when someone is seeking shelter for intimate partner violence or exploitation, that there might be some health outcomes that they need to be aware of, you know, head injuries or strangulation type of, of health harms, right? And so we all have to sort of know each other's sector and how the patient is gonna experience all of these different things. Because a patient is a person, is a whole human being. They're not a sector, right? They're not healthcare. They're not medical. They're not social services. They're not law enforcement or education or what have you. So it's really trying to braid all of those things together. Can you talk a little bit more about those health disparities and what are some of those key disparities that you've observed and from a global health equity perspective? And what can we do to close those gaps? Is there anything we can do? Do you mean, um, Dana, health disparities in terms of who's made to be more vulnerable to being exploited? Yeah, I think that's a great place to start. I mean, who is most vulnerable to be exploited into being human trafficking? There is a a really important textbook that came out a couple of years ago. I wrote one of the chapters in it, but it's, it's, it's called The Historical Roots of Human Trafficking. It's by edited by Dr. McKinney Chisholm Straker and Catherine Chan who is the director of the Office of Trafficking in Persons with the Administration for Children and Families in the federal government. So this textbook actually talks about some of the policies that we make as a society that can predispose people or make people more vulnerable to being exploited. And you can think about some of these policies, right, in the past, historical policies, policies that prevented certain populations or people of color from wealth generation or capital generation, like redlining, lending discrimination. And you can think about policies in gender, gender policies, for example, that women are are paid less than, on the whole, population-wise, less than men, right? 82 cents on the dollar or something like that. I don't know what the actual statistics are. Or you can think about immigration policies, right? Immigration, different statuses, immigration statuses, confer different rights and benefits and differential access to systems of care and protection. And so when you think about the policies we create, who's included and who's excluded 
from access to these systems, that creates vulnerabilities. And so that's what I think about when I think about exploitation and who might be made more vulnerable to being exploited or trafficked. I remember in my health policy class, we when we were evaluating a policy, we would talk about unintended consequences of a policy. But on the flip side, have you observed policy for good where it has helped survivors or it has helped kind of close that gap a little bit? Certainly, there's policies that increase access to systems of care and protection, decrease vulnerabilities. So if you're thinking about big P policy, you know, the Affordable Care Act, that policy really enabled a whole swath of people to be able to access healthcare. And, you know, some people think about that healthcare or health insurance is just, you know, the payment mechanism. But what does that mean? It decreases a barrier for someone to see a professional, a healthcare professional who can make those connections between the health impacts of this sort of violences or exploitation or or conditions that they live, work, and play in. And so, so that's very crucial. Another policy, for example, from intimate partner violence world is that intimate partner violence is a qualifying event, which means that you can apply and you can apply for for health insurance. Um, I think on the on the marketplace anytime during the year, not just during the what the January, December, January open enrollment period. That's a policy that increases access and that decreases barriers for people to see me as a doctor for example. I'd love to hear a little bit about your work at Asian Health Services and what you're working on there and any initiatives that you're doing around human trafficking and intimate partner violence. At my work at Asian Health Services, I see patients a couple of days a week and, and the rest of the time I do different kinds of technical assistance and training. So I work with Futures Without Violence's Health Partners on IPV and Exploitation. This is a national training and technical assistance partnership that is funded through the Health Resources Services Administration. And it's supposed to give health centers nationwide technical assistance and training and tools and resources in order to get community health centers to build the capacity so that we can take care of patients who've experienced violence and exploitation or or our colleagues, our staff, because this is an issue that affects anyone. Those kinds of, that kind of work that I do in, in technical assistance is based out of Asian Health Services. And I work with Futures Without Violence on that. I know that you're at a community health center, but this is something that happens all across the country, all across the world. I know when I had shared that a couple of the slides from the session at NAC, that there was a big response about it, that, hey, look, we can document this in our EMR EHR and that we can have that. Do you have any pieces of advice for other people that are in healthcare that maybe work at a hospital or other points of entry into the healthcare system on how you know, what are the best practices in dealing with this? I know that's kind of a loaded question, but where can you start? No, you're on the right track, Dana. I, I think, I, I know you do this podcast for health IT. And so let's start with that. You asked the question about the EHR and the EMRs. One of the big things that we are now working on at Health Partners on IPV and Exploitation is making sure that the EHR systems, they, they have ways to help the provider, the clinician, to facilitate universal education on intimate partner violence and exploitation. So this is different from screening. Screening is when you ask a yes or no question. Hey, Dana, has anyone ever hit you, pushed you, punched you, slapped you in a, in a relationship? 
Or have you ever traded sex for something of value? It's a yes or no question. When you do these kinds of yes or no questions, you get a yes or no answer. And depending on that answer, you get resources or you don't. But we know that there are many barriers for people to disclose, to disclose that they have been subjected to violence in their relationships, to disclose that they may be needing financial support. And so they're engaging in in sexual commercial sex in order to uh, maintain their financial stability in their home economics. You know, this kind of screening question is not something that we encourage solely. We are actually encouraging universal education. And so a lot of providers might not have the language or or the scripting or the fluency on how to have that kind of universal education or conversation with a patient. And so with health IT, we're building this in, these kind of scripts, suggested scripts on how providers can ask or have conversations about intimate partner violence and exploitation. That's that's the first thing. The second thing is there are now ICD-10, International Classification of Disease Codes, yeah, for intimate partner violence and exploitation. Providers can use that to help on a population level to document what people are experiencing, whether it's in, in their patient population or in their communities as a whole. But we want to be very careful. We want to be very careful that patients are aware that this can be documented. We want to be careful and aware that we take into consideration patients' privacy, their confidentiality, and their security and their safety. And so that's developing principles within electronic health records where these records are secure. They can be only accessed by you know certain providers that the patient assents to having it documented. The information is not being sent out. Yeah, I know we talked about this a little bit at the session. Yeah, I led a, a SOGI, SOGI data session with my really good friend from the Los Angeles LGBT Center. And we talked about how do we know for sure that my data won't be used against me? That's a very difficult question to answer, but I think there's a lot of fear with that about going to access healthcare because I don't want to give away anything that could be used against me in the future. So there's a lot of things to try to navigate through in this world. I applaud you folks for having this kind of discussion and these situations to come up, especially around when we know that there's artificial intelligence coming up and different ways the the health record can be used or mined sometimes. And we want to be very, very cognizant of the effects that it can happen on people. And so, you know, we should think about that. And so with Futures Without Violence, we're, we're looking at the privacy, safety, confidentiality aspects and working with different EMRs to mitigate some of those risks. I liked how you talked a little bit about the role that technology can play in this. Is there any opportunities to innovate for this? Is there a way that digital health can, can digital health play any part in creating a solution in either identifying or assisting in human trafficking? Wow, that's a big question. We ask the big questions around here. You do ask very big questions. There are ways, I'm sure, that digital technology can assist in combating intimate partner violence and human trafficking. And I know that there are a lot of privacy rights that are being debated in the public sphere right now. They have tried to use to get big technology companies to combat and to to look at exploitation of children 
and different images and things like that. But there's some pushback. There's a lot of pushback from the privacy sector. So I think these are big questions, <laughs> which certainly I'm not prepared to answer. I certainly have a view that some of the privacy considerations can be, I guess, what is the word violated? Maybe if going to save or if it's going to mitigate the harms on children who are being sexually exploited. My own personal view, but this is a up for debate in our society and our constitution. And how, how do we balance those things? It's a lot to unpack, but doesn't mean that we can't try to dive in. And I know that we have listeners all across the healthcare ecosystem that could maybe create that solution. Um, I think at the end of the day, it's important to bring the people who are impacted by human trafficking, people like you that are helping to close these gaps to innovate. I think that there's tremendous opportunity there for, for that to happen and to that for that to occur. It's a big public debate right now, for sure. And I think I got one last question for you. I was wondering if there was any last story or experience that profoundly impacted your understanding of human trafficking and the role of healthcare in supporting that, that you wanted to share. I would say it's more common than people think. Exploitation, labor exploitation, and sexual exploitation. It's more common than we think. It happens to people in our community. It happens to our patients, particularly at community health centers. Once you're aware of it, you can't unsee it. And you can see sort of how exploitation and this drive for capital at the expense of other people's bodies, their labor, the labor they produce and, and their bodies, this, you know, the sexual aspect of sex trafficking is really, it's horrible. And it is something that we as group humanity can address. Because most people don't want to intentionally harm somebody else. But this drive for capital and this drive for profit and this drive for wealth, I think, puts people at risk. I'll give you an example. There was a restaurant chain here in the Bay Area where a patient of mine was working and she couldn't work. She got sick. I wrote a note, let them know that she couldn't work. They got upset. The employers got upset and said, hey, if you can't work, you don't have a job. She had a, a condition where, you know, you're not allowed. It's illegal to fire someone for, for these kinds of illnesses. And so I wrote another note. Employer was very upset, threatened to fire all of the community members from this person's and all of her friends and family members who also worked at this restaurant. Got her involved with the medical legal partnership here, civil legal aid. They worked it out. She's kept her job. Fast forward a few years later, big announcement in the newspaper that this particular restaurant chain has is fined for a number of wage and labor violations. And so I think about that and I think about us connecting her to this medical legal partnership, civil legal aid, being advocates for this these folks who are immigrants, where it was very pivotal and helpful for a whole population of, of folks, or a whole, whole group of folks who are working at this particular restaurant chain. And I also think that perhaps these, maybe maybe I'm an optimist, but perhaps these restaurant owners, they also were immigrants and perhaps they also didn't understand the laws, maybe. Maybe I'm, I'm being too generous. <laughs> but, you know, I, I just think that there's in, tremendous pressure in our society about capital and wealth and the values that we prescri- ascribe to that when 
it's interesting. That's all I have to say. I don't know. I don't have any big, <laughs> big alarm. I think that's exceptionally profound. I think the intersection with wealth, I saw a thing on TikTok. It was a quote that said, when I was younger, all I used to dream about was art and music. And now all I can think about is money. And I think there's a lot to unpack there and to think about. So, but I think at the end of the day, yeah, I was going to say at the end of the day, I think it's, um, you just never know where somebody's coming from or what their story is. So we have to lead with empathy and be empathetic to somebody. We don't know what the story behind the person is. So I think that's an important piece of this puzzle. It is. It's huge. I don't know. Have ans- I don't have answers. We just have questions here on this podcast. <laughs> it's all good. It's great to ask questions. and. I want to thank you so much for all of the work that you do. It is incredibly important. Thank you so much. And I want to thank everybody for listening. You can learn more about our guest by going to our website or visiting us on any of our socials with the handle Hit Like a Girl podcast. Thank you again, Dr. Chang. And we will see you all again soon. Thanks for listening. You can learn more about us or this guest by going to our website or visiting us on any of the socials with the handle Hit Like a Girl Pod. Thanks again. See you soon. Again, thank you so much for listening to the Hit Like a Girl podcast. I am truly grateful for you and I'm wondering if you could do me a quick favor. Would you be willing to follow or subscribe to this podcast or maybe leave us a rating or review? Or if you're feeling extra generous, would you share this episode on your Instagram stories or with a friend? All those things help us podcasters out so much. I'm the show's host, Joy Rios, and I'll see you next time.